There are 11 mentions of this person in the New Testament. Um, To be honest, most of these mentions in the New Testament, most of these 11 occasions, he's just in a list with all his mates. He's just like one of the team, you know? Almost a passing comment. Um, He's mostly known, though, for only one thing. Just one thing seems to almost define him. And four of those 11 mentions are all in five verses just on that one thing. And the one thing he's known for is usually seen as not a good thing. That one thing tends to define him, give him a label, if you like. In fact, if we were to say his name, most of us, maybe all of us, would immediately put a word in front of his name because it comes so readily to mind. And I want to redeem his reputation this morning. I want to recognize this character as somebody who the gospel writer John uses as the epitome of what it is to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do believe that God is going to speak to us this morning. It's wonderful to see you. And it was funny seeing Phil getting people talking and then trying to shut them up again. I love churches like that. I love churches where you can't shut people up because of that relational community. And and, and if you're still at home, then God bless you at home. God's going to speak to you this morning as well. We're going to think about this character. 11 mentions. Just, Just this one thing that seems to define him. Thomas. And I'm not going to say that word that we put in front of his name because we're all thinking it. Stop it. But we do. John's Gospel, chapter 20. And I'm going to ask you to turn to that. We're going to sit in that. We're going to stay in that. As if by magic, it may appear on the screen behind me. You never know. That's just magic in church. No, it's not magic in church. Um, But it's good to actually have your Bible. And if you're at home, get your Bible open. I I encourage people over and over to make sure we do that. Whether it's digital or paper, it's good to actually have it and interact with it and scribble on it. It's really important. So John's Gospel, chapter 20. And as I'll explain later, um, almost certainly Bible scholars say originally the last gospel, uh, sorry, the last chapter of this gospel, John 20. And the first 10 verses, I'm not going to read, but it's all about the first day of the week uh, after Jesus has been die, had, had died and been buried. And the, the people don't yet know he's risen from the dead. It's an astonishing story. And so first Mary, then Peter, then John, they found out that the body of Jesus is not there anymore. It's incredible. And it finishes, if you like, at the end of verse 8, it says, John, he saw and believed. But then let's pick it up from verse 10. So this is John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 10. And it's a, a fair chunk of Scripture, and I want to make sure we sit in this Scripture. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. I don't know, that's good disguise or something, I don't know. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? He's a bit on the naughty side, Jesus, sometimes. Have you noticed that? Who are you looking for? Yeah. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Oh, he said, Mary. Do you know, if you know somebody and they say your name, wow, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Maybe she was trying to grab him or something. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that she that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I love that. He walks through the wall. I think that's, talk about naughty Jesus, you know? He walks through the wall and says, Peace be with <laughs> you. Anyway, um, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, He showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He's alive. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I love that. He he breathes on them. He sends them and then gives them the Holy Spirit. Always together. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, which means the twin, one of the twelve, the guy in the lists, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came. He does it again. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, the Passion Translation picks up the, the heart of this and says, Then he looked Thomas in the eye. Then he turned to Thomas. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. You see, as I mentioned before, almost certainly scholars tell us that this was the original ending of John's gospel. Uh, The 21st chapter was added a little bit later. doesn't mean it's any less inspired or less authentic, but this was the end of John's gospel as he first wrote it. And he wants to finish explaining why he's written his gospel. That's why those last two verses says, Jesus did a load of other stuff. But I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you may have life in his name. When John wrote his gospel, he's got two themes all the way through. The big theme is there is life, eternal, everlasting quality of life in Jesus. And to receive that life, you believe. All the way through, believe and you receive life. Believe and you receive life. That is his theme all the way through. But here's the key for mm-mm, Thomas. I'm not going to say it, even if you make me. Because we do. I feel sorry for him. You know, forevermore, when we all have our t shirts in heaven, he's going to be mm-mm, Thomas on his t shirt, you know? Oh my goodness. But I want to redeem something of his character because I love him. Because there's a little bit of me in him. Do you know what the key point is we often miss from this story of mm-mm, Thomas? 
that other people's experiences were not good enough for Thomas. That's the key. Other people's experiences were not good enough for Thomas. And here's my single point for this morning's message. And I don't think I've ever spoken on "Mm -mm, Thomas before in church. But I know God dropped this into my heart. Now is the time for you to move from the experience of others to your own personal experience. Now's the time for you to move from the experience of others to your own personal experience. And as Isaac before was looking at Cameron talking about students, there is a student out there, and you know that's the case, especially for you. You know that right now. You see, the testimony of other people will only carry you so far. Ultimately, you and I need our own personal experience of Jesus. The experience of others is great. I grew up in church and you hear stories about people telling their testimony, their their faith story about how Jesus healed them or saved them or delivered them or provided for them. And it's wonderful, but it's their story. And Thomas hears the story of others. We've seen the Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like Thomas says, bully for you. It's all right for you. Interesting that we have to say, The experience of others is helpful, it's good, it's supportive, it's encouraging, but it's not our own personal experience. Did you notice Thomas is very specific about what will help him believe? Verse 25, he actually says it so specifically. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. You see, did you notice that when Jesus appeared to the disciples... Um, verse 20, he showed them his hands and side. In other words, Jesus said, look, this is the evidence, this is the proof. I'm the one who died. Here are the marks of sacrifice. Sometimes we have this weird thing in church, you know, where we think that Jesus somehow all, all of a sudden was repaired. He still has those sacrifice marks on his body. Even today, ruling and reigning in heaven with his father, he still carries those marks. And so when he appears to the disciples, he shows them his hands and feet. And that's why in verse 25, Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger with them and put my hand into it, I won't believe it. He's very specific. He would not pretend. I love it when people don't pretend. Hey, I've grown up in church all my life. I'm really sorry, but sometimes churches do pretend. I mean, not this church, obviously. Not healing churches. I quite like my job at the college. But sometimes you can have that fakeness You can have that pretend. You also have something that different writers will speak about called groupthink. And groupthink is when you're just carried along with the group. Hey, we're all going for a Chinese. Yeah, yeah, we're all going for a Chinese. I hate Chinese. Yeah, we're all going for a Chinese. You just get carried along with stuff. And sometimes we get people carried along in faith. But it's not theirs. They're carried along by parental faith or youth pastor faith. Thomas is very specific because he would not pretend. He didn't want to fake it. And you get this thing, fake it till you make it. No! He didn't want to pretend. He didn't want to fake it. And a week passes by. Don't miss that because it's in a little bit of a story. The 26, a week later, a week's gone by. A week later, Thomas was with them this side, this time. Jesus does his, did he? Again, through the wall. Yeah, calm down, calm down. Well, stop, stop walking through the wall and you won't have to say, don't be afraid. It's <laughs> a bit scary, Jesus, doing that. I wonder if he says to them, when you get a body like mine, you'll be able to do it. Are you looking forward to that? 
Because we're all going to have bodies like Jesus walk through the world. Hello. Oh, anyway, sorry, that's in brackets. But what I love about this, Jesus comes again, does his trick through the wall. He says, peace be with you to them. And then he looked at Thomas. And he quotes Thomas. Did you notice that? He repeats his exact words. It's like Jesus had bugged the room a week before. When Thomas said to them, unless I, blah, 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 Jesus quotes him. I think that's so wonderful. Jesus is so accommodating. Jesus accommodates Thomas and gives him a personal experience as, exactly as he'd asked. I, I have an alternative Bible, which is what Jesus might have done. And I think Jesus might hear and said, you cheeky monkey. Fancy you being so spe- specific and precise. He doesn't do a cheeky monkey. He says, hey, he meets Thomas right where Thomas asked to be met. He says, peace be with you to them all. Then he looks at Thomas and the Passion Translation says, he gets Thomas in the eye, looks him in the eye. And he quotes him and says exactly what he said. Do you know the interesting thing is, we don't actually find out whether Thomas does put his finger in his hand and whatever. Most Bible scholars say he didn't because he didn't need to. But the story doesn't tell us. But what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. You see, this morning, I believe even here and certainly watching on screen, there are some people you need to move from the Lord and the God to my Lord and my God. You either need to do that for the first time or you need to recover that because you know you've lost something of that personal walk and intimacy with Jesus because it's been a horrible 18 months, hasn't it? I believe with all my heart that what God is saying to us this morning is we need that personal encounter. I mean, I'm in encounter church, for goodness sake. We need that personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ because the testimony and the story and the faith of others will only carry us so far. Do you know, Thomas is the first person in this gospel to address Jesus directly as God. All the way through, John has been trying really hard to let people hear what Jesus did, see what Jesus did, and draw their conclusion. Wow, this must be God. But he's never been directly, specifically addressed as my Lord and my God until Thomas does it. As I mentioned before, this was the original end of the gospel. It finishes, is originally written at the end of chapter 20. And one writer, one commentator says this, The confession of Thomas to Jesus is rightly regarded as the culmination of the revelation of God in Christ recorded in the fourth gospel. Even the archetypal skeptic can believe the pessimistic, suspicious guy who doesn't want to fake it and pretend. He needs certainty. He needs personal revelation of Jesus. But even he believes. So this person that we refer to as "Mm -mm, Thomas... John, the writer of the gospel, saves up to be the last example of somebody who believes and trusts Jesus and follows him with all their heart. Many chapters before, he talked about Nick. Do you remember Nick? Nicky Demas, that helps. Okay. That was many chapters before. And then the, woman, the, the, the chapter after, the woman at the well, who we never hear her, who, who, her name. Uh, absolutely archetypal stories of people who came to faith in Jesus. But who does gospel writer John wait till the end? 
Faith-filled Thomas, not mm-mm Thomas. Because even a thinker... It's really funny. I remember when I was pastoring years ago, we had two wonderful people in our church. Let's call them Nora and Norman. That was, that was their names. You might as well call them by their names. Both great people. And there was one time when Nora came and shared her faith story about something that God, God had done with her. And afterwards, I was talking to Norman. And uh, probably both of them would have been 20 years older than me at the time. It was a while ago. Um, and Norman said, do you know, I do wish I had a simple faith like, like Nora. And I knew what he meant. Nora just had that simple faith. It's like, well, the Bible says this. And yeah, yeah, great. Way. And she had that about her, which was wonderful. But Norman was a thinker, a little bit suspicious. You ain't ever going to sell him anything on the door, I tell you. You know? He's going to do a tough deal with a used car dealer. He's got that about him. What I love about that is that God takes us all in our different personalities. And Norman, like Thomas, was a bit of a thinker. And he wished he could just believe simply, but he complicated things. He overthought things. And I'm a bit of an overthinker. And I've got friends of mine who are overthinkers. And you know what I love? Jesus copes with the overthinker. Because Thomas is a little bit overthinking, but he doesn't want to pretend. And so John saves his best story. Nicodemus, yeah, that's great. Woman at the well, that's great. Loads of other people on the journey, that's great. But who does he save till the end? The thinking, analytical guy who won't pretend and won't fake it, but is determined, saying, unless this happens, I'm not going to believe it. A week later, Jesus comes and says, go on then, mate. Wow, that is a moment. That is a moment. One writer says this, and I love this. He doubted in order to be sure. He didn't doubt because he wanted to find out it was untrue. He wanted to find out it was true, but he doubted in order to be sure. You see, your doubts can lead you to a deeper faith. And sometimes in churches, we're not good at allowing people to voice doubt. It's really interesting, and I sometimes wonder whether it's insecure pastors. Did I say that out loud? Obviously, not Phil and me. But sometimes I just wonder whether it's about insecure pastors or control or whatever. But we don't let people voice doubt. I want to encourage you as a church, allow people to voice doubt. You see, Thomas voices his doubt, and through the journey, he becomes even stronger in faith. But if we're not careful, things happen in our lives. Stuff's happened this last 18 months. You may have lost a loved one during this last 18 months. You might have, loved, might have lost a job. You might have lost friendships. You, you might have lost something of faith in Jesus. That's what's going on. You might have lost the habit of church. You might have lost the habit of prayer or Bible reading. You see, I'm realizing more and more this last 18 months, there are some people who feel that they've been robbed of stuff. And I would encourage you to reclaim anything that you've been robbed of. And the most important thing to reclaim is a genuine personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe for the first time, you're on the brink of finding that. You see, let's build church cultures that's real, that's authentic. I preach in a few different places and down the years, especially with younger people, now I'm knocking on a bit, especially with younger people, I've had people come and say, man, that was real. Wow, that was authentic. Wow, that was real and genuine. And for a few seconds, I'm really encouraged. But then I'm a bit disheartened that apparently the authenticity and the reality was so unusual, it was worthy of mention. That's sad. So I'm encouraged. But I'm also at times a little bit frustrated. 
Let's make sure we don't bury doubt. I know sometimes people who have doubts and fears, and especially over the last 18 months, I believe with all my heart, different ones of us have got questions in our mind and maybe fears and anxieties and doubts and wonderings and why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did this? Somebody I love dearly died during the whole pandemic and and why did it happen that way? I've got these, these things. Let's make sure we build a healthy relational church that is able to cope with voicing doubts. Rather than pretending, let's not be a church that fakes it till we make it. But let's push through real doubt. Because now's the time to move from the experience of others to your own personal experience. I, I, I grew up in church. I went to church from when I was minus nine months old. And then when I was young, my, my dad had been a pastor. My mum and dad were missionaries, went out to Japan, planted church in Japan. And, and then by the time we came back, I don't do my story very often, but by the time we came back from Japan, I, in my early teens, probably maybe pre-teens, um, my mum a little bit, my dad, were treated so horrendously as missions workers. Kind of long, long story, so horrendously. Very painful, very, very... I'm just like a, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old just hearing grown-ups talking. But boy, oh boy. And so by the time I'm 12, 13, my dad never went to church again. And that was tough. That was painful. And so I'm coming through my teens with all these wonderings. And I, my mum reconnected with church. I don't know that my dad would ever say he renounced his faith in God, but boy, he renounced his faith in church, I tell you. And I'm coming through all those wonderings and all those things and all these messy things in my head. And I'd grown up in a strong, powerful church. I remember as a kid, like 900 people gathering on Sundays. Lots of faith stories. Lots of people telling me about this healing and this miracle. I remember going to this elderly lady and saying, how come you followed Jesus faithfully for all these years? She says, well, when I got out of the wheelchair when I was 19 and was healed by Jesus, I've never looked back. I thought, okay, that's all right then. You know? I've told you before about this little old... Oh, and said, Biddy. It's a good job, didn't it? This little old lady who, who I once said, has Jesus done anything nice for you? She says, well, he did raise me from the dead. Well, that's pretty neat. But there are other people's stories. And I hit 20. And when I was 21... I did a two-month mission with something called Operation Mobilization. Transformed my life. You may know of OM. It's like, it's like youth without any money with even less money, if you know that. Transformed my life. Do you know why? Because even now, I can remember it was my faith journey. It wasn't my mum and dad's anymore. It wasn't my Sunday school teachers. It wasn't my pastors. It wasn't my youth leaders. It was my journey. And I can tell you sometimes, I remember one time we had a team of 20 and I'm driving the truck. We had people in the back of the truck at different times. And I'm driving through France and Eric, I remember, wonderful. He was French, but he was wonderful. I'm sorry. And, uh, and Eric was the team leader and we're driving along and suddenly... We ran out of diesel. <laughs> different times. No, not different times. Anyway. Um, and, and we're at the top of the hill. And Eric's French. He says, let's roll down the hill. So I rolled down. So we just rolled down. And I'm thinking, I wonder if the brakes will look on the end. Anyway, I'm rolling down this hill. And as we got to the bottom of the hill, he didn't know the air. We were in Brittany. Um, and we got to the bottom of the hill, right in the countryside. Turned around the hill. And there's a petrol station. We'd run out of it. So we rolled into the petrol station. And we just stopped. And I'm like, well, I'll pray. You're French. You do the talking. So we just sat there. This man followed by a lady. I remember it. This is 40 years ago. 
And they came out and they looked at the truck and they had this conversation. And I got all over French, which is a long, very rusty. But I could tell that something was going on in this conversation. And Eric came and told the team, what had happened is the month before, a truck just like this had come with people from OM and they donated them some Bibles and not asked for any money. And he said, we've read these Bibles, we've given them to some of our friends. We like these Bibles. We're a Catholic background, so we've never had our own Bible. So we're looking at it. It's really great. We, were, we never paid for the Bibles. Would you like us to fill up your tank with diesel? I'm like, it's my faith story. And, and there's so many little things like that. The miracle of God's provision. And then a year or two later, I was finishing, I did undergrad stuff in architecture in Manchester, and I was the president of Christian Union, and I was asked to do something with something called UCCF, an organisation. But I wanted to go with OM to, to India, because really spiritual people go to, to India, don't they, Divya? Where's Divya? Really spiritual people go to India. Um, and I was ready to go to India. And then God spoke to me. To me. To Pete Reed. Through the Bible, you know, like supposed to happen. I remember it as clear as a bell. And I was just in my ordinary devotions and reading Psalm 37 dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. It was like it was five foot high in red letters beep, beep, beep. And I knew I should stay in Britain and not go to India. But I wanted to go to India. That lunchtime, the, the president of the Christian Union had already arranged to meet me. So we met for lunch uh, and uh, we're in his, his whole residence. Charles, he was called. I mean, that would put you off, wouldn't it? Charles. I couldn't believe it. And, and, and a bit worse than that, he was Anglican. He was like, posh Anglican. In fact, worse than that. And I'm not really prejudiced much, but he was a southerner. I mean, for goodness sake. Charles, Anglican, southerner. But we're there, and he said, hey, just before we pray, there's a question I want to ask you. Now, I didn't realise he wanted to ask me, would I be willing to be the president of the Christian Union in Manchester the year after? Because if I did that, I couldn't go to India. But God had already spoken to me from Psalm 37. And he said, but just this morning, I felt before we pray, I should read a scripture to you. It's this one from Psalm 37. And I'm just in floods of tears. I can feel that moment now. God spoke to me through an Anglican southerner. (laughs) But I knew it was God speaking. That doesn't happen every week. God doesn't tell me not to go to India every week. (laughs) But you know what mattered? was my experience I want to encourage you push through to your experience that's what Thomas did the experience of others that was exciting that was brilliant that was wonderful but it wasn't his experience you see he can only carry you so far we need our own personal experience of Jesus your faith find your faith find your voice find your vocation Find your motivation, your encounter. Be willing to make your sacrifices. It's your journey. Thomas was so specific. Only if this happens will I be... Whoa! That's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus is wonderful at accommodating our whims almost because he so badly wants to have a relationship with you and with me. And so, just to conclude, and just to let you know, I'm going to invite people, and it's a bit weird in church, isn't it? We don't know when to mask or not to mask, go two meter tape measures everywhere. I mean, it's just a bit weird. We know it's all a little bit weird. But I, I check with Phil, and, and I really want to encourage you. I'm going to ask a few people in a moment. If you feel God's spoken to you in one of two specific ways, I'm going to invite you to come and stand at the front before God. And maybe if you're watching this at home, maybe you're with one or two others, maybe on your own. 
I'm going to encourage you to take an action because I know God wants me to speak this to you there as well as us here. So three things to conclude. It's a personal revelation. It's a personal revelation. Personal revelation was very important for John, the gospel writer. That's why I commented on the fact that in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, before of what we read, John reached the tomb. The tomb was empty. And it says he saw and believed. He saw and believed. You may not know this. If you're a Christian for a while, you will. But John, who wrote the gospel, also wrote three little letters at the end of the New Testament. And the first one of those, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. What moment do you think he's remembering? When he writes that many years later, what moment is he remembering? When he says, that which we've seen with our own eyes, we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. It mattered to him so much that it was about a personal revelation. And he wanted to save up to the end of his gospel some very honest plonker of a bloke. That's why we identify with him. Who just in good faith said, I don't want to fake it. I don't want to pretend. I want my own encounter. And that's what Jesus gave him, a personal revelation. But secondly, it's a genuine revelation. Make sure we don't pretend. I know that in my teens, I learned how to look Christian. I learned to do that on the seat in front of your church. And if you fell asleep and suddenly went, then you had to finish. Amen, amen. And then it looked okay. And, and to, to look, we, we can do that so much. Let's not pretend, let's not fake it, let's make sure it's a genuine revelation. You see, what does he have a revelation of? He has a revelation of the crucified and risen Jesus. The marks of his sacrificial death are still on his body, but he's now conquered death and hell. It's a revelation of the crucified and risen Jesus. Jesus is not just a nice bloke, he's not just a good prophet, he's not just an awesome teacher. What does Thomas say eventually? My Lord and my God. See, there can be no faith in Jesus without being confronted with the scars of his sacrificial death. If you've not had an encounter with Jesus, not of him being a teacher or a prophet, but of him being the sacrificed Son of God who's risen again, then it's not genuine. But thirdly, it's a transforming revelation. It's a transforming revelation. It's interesting that, and I won't spend much time on this because it's sort of church history and tradition, but we hear uh, that Thomas became an incredible mighty apostle of God. We hear that he went to India and established churches and people came to faith. There's a bit of India going on today. Anyway, and we hear that he was martyred. You are not martyred for your faith unless it's a strong faith. Boy, you know when faith is real when it's put under pressure. Thomas had a transforming revelation. See, if your life has not been transformed, you've not really met Jesus. If we think we've met Jesus and our life is no different, we ain't met Jesus. I remember many, many years ago, Jill and I were involved in um, sort of youth ministry, younger youth ministry, it was a while ago. And I remember we were at a camp, a Christian camp, a Christian sort of conference, and this, uh, this girl came to us, probably 14 years old, 30, 40, 15. And she said, I need to have a conversation with you privately. I said, yeah, okay. So Jill and I sat and chatted with her. And um, she said, I, I, I need to 
come to faith in Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, it's lovely. She says, the only problem is everybody at church thinks I'm already a Christian. She says, I've grown up in church. My dad's the pastor. So everybody just thinks because I'm around, I've become a Christian. Can I become a Christian now? She's determined not to pretend. So therefore, this morning, I believe God is speaking to us so clearly. This is a moment to have a personal revelation of Jesus, to have a genuine revelation of Jesus, and to have a transforming revelation of Jesus. Other people's experiences can only take you so far. That student, I believe, I know I'm speaking to a particular student, and you've come here to study. Now's the time. You've got that rich history in other people's stories, but now's the time to make that your story, to make that your encounter with Jesus. So maybe Isaac and the team 